0: I'd like to invite Pastor Angelo Valley to our pulpit to preach to us tonight. Thank you, Angelo. Well, good evening. We are glad that we can come together as God's people to hear his word to be encouraged by it. This evening, before we come to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, let us take a moment to pray. Would you bow your heads with me at this time? Let us pray before we seek God's blessing for us. Father in heaven, we thank you again for the gift of your holy word. We thank you that in your mercy and kindness that you have given it to us. You have proclaimed your glory as creator through all of creation. You reveal yourself most clearly as Redeemer through your Old and New Testament. We ask God that tonight by the gift of your Holy Spirit we might understand this word more. That we might see the treasures that are there for us already that would produce much fruit in our hearts and lives so that we would be changed. We're not seeking to merely jump through uh, endless religious hoops but, but to come into your presence and be transformed To know that we have met with the living God. And to that end we pray that you would help us. For the sake of Christ our King. Amen. Our first scripture lesson this evening comes from Lamentations chapter 3. Verse 19 to 33. Again Lamentations, chapter three, verse nineteen to thirty three. Let us give careful attention to the reading of God's holy inspired and inerrant word. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults for the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We come to our second reading today. Our. Our main reading, our sermon text from Psalm 116. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I love the Lord. Because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, He saved me. Return, O my soul, to your rest. For the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I love the Psalms. Our church at the present is preaching through them. We're on Psalm 4, so there's quite a bit of distance between this Psalm and where we are. But one of the things I love about the Psalter is that every emotion imaginable is contained. I've heard it said if you can't find the emotion you're experiencing in the Psalms, it's because you're bad at finding them. This Psalter, this book of Psalms, is a gift for God's people. It's the original hymnal, it's the original prayer book, it's the guiding light. It shows us Christ in every season and moment. It's a gift. It's a reminder to us that the God whom we serve cares for us deeply. And so when we look at this psalm tonight, this very evening, we find the language of love right from the outset. How does this psalm begin? It says, I love the Lord. Today, we use one of the most ancient professions of faith that our Christian faith has in the Apostles' Creed. But even more basic than that is this simple declaration I love the Lord. We can know many things about God. We can identify the glorious reality of God existing as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can speak of His covenant relationship with us as His people, this mysterious intra-Trinitarian, so on and so forth. But if we have not love, we are noisy gongs. My question to you tonight is not, are you capable of reciting the shorter catechism? But do you love the Lord? That is a far more important question. And so all of us this evening have to wrestle with our own hearts. Do we, in our hearts, have this written clearly? I love the Lord. Do you love the Lord this evening? Perhaps there is some part of us that when we consider such a question, maybe it comes across either either as too simple or, or too maybe unnecessary. But I am of the opinion that, we are often fumbling in our walks because we forget the fundamentals. Very recently, I found out I have access to baseball. Now, you may not know this, but I love baseball. But I'm too cheap to pay for it. I don't pay for cable. I'm not going to pay extra on the MLB network or something like that. But I found through one of my things, my networks, I now watch baseball. and I can enjoy it all the time. And the worst thing in the world is when you watch a professional who's paid millions of dollars not know how to catch a fly ball. When you have people who are supposed to be experts and don't know how to do the most basic and fundamental things, we never outgrow our need for the fundamentals. And so if I gave you a piece of paper in five minutes to write out what you think are the five fundamentals of the faith, how many of you would put loving the Lord your God? And so we go to that personal question, do you love the Lord? If you do love the Lord, why do you love the Lord? There are many reasons that we may have tonight for loving the Lord and all of His goodness. Some reasons are useful. Some, maybe not so much. Maybe a different question that might be raised is how? How do you love the Lord? Does your love for God show itself day in and day out? Both questions are answered for us by this psalmist this evening. And indeed, they they must impact our lives and what we do day in and day out. If we say we are those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, if we are those who know God and are known by Him. And so, to make things nice, neat, and tidy, I thought it'd be useful. We're going to organize this psalm, which is of some size, into three heads very simply tonight. The first is that God's acts reveal His identity. God's acts reveal His identity. The second thing we're going to examine this evening is that God's acts transform His people. God's acts transform His people. Thirdly, we're going to see that God's acts shape His worship. There we are. The first point will correspond uh, by teaching us uh, about this psalmist and why he loves the Lord, and why I, I pray that tonight, if you don't love the Lord tonight, if you're indifferent about the Lord, that you will leave tonight an entirely different person by the work of the Spirit. The second point is going to show us how the psalmist demonstrated his love for God, and by implication, how we too ought to love God. So let's begin with the first God's acts reveal his identity. We have begun so far by just looking at that first bit, those first words. This psalm displaying the love of the psalmist. But the psalmist's love isn't born in a vacuum. The psalmist's love is a response to the love God has shown for his people broadly and into, unto him in particular. The psalmist gives us some clues. He teaches us that, that he was in a situation that was of some difficulty, He wasn't simply having a bad day. You have a bad day when you walk after making breakfast, sneeze, and you drop your eggs on the floor. Oh, that's the beginning of a bad day. He was having something far worse than a dropped omelet. Have you ever been in such a bad day that you were wondering if you were on the brink of death? Maybe the death of a job, or relationship, or even physical. Have you ever thought, today is the day I die? Maybe you were in an accident, and you thought it might be the end. Years ago, I was at a church, and there was an enormous tornado expected to come right through the church. I I think that was the very first time in my life where I thought, maybe today is the day I die. By God's grace, uh, nothing happened. We we were safe, and everything worked out well, by, by God's mercy. Maybe you had some sort of strange sickness, and you were brought to your brink. I pray that you don't consider such things regularly in your world, but Those moments have a way of sobering us up. It it realizes that the things that bother us, that drive us crazy, that are annoyances, the thousands of house projects that you are festering and thinking about are actually all not that important. It also teaches us how to cry out to God. The psalmist provides us with this vivid image of death snaring him all over. Think of Gulliver's Travels. We read in verse 3, The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. What is this like? It's as if death has trapped him like a massive spider. He couldn't move. He couldn't budge. He was stuck in sheer panic, immobilized in the webs of death, and all he could hear is the clicking of the spider wanting him more and more. What would he do? What would any of you do? I know some of you enjoy Lord of the Rings. I make assumptions. It's like being trapped by Shilam. We would likely echo the very words of Peter when the Lord Jesus invited him to step out onto the waves. Matthew records Peter's words for us. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and he simply cried out, Lord, save me. It's interesting, we always think that the more religious a person is, the longer their prayers seem to be, or the nicer they sound. But in reality, the closer you are to God, the closer your prayer life resembles a tiny child crying out in need of a parent. I have little ones, and often they have a hard time sleeping. Why? I don't know. It just seems to go with being a child. But not once do they say, Father, I'm in the mood for some warm milk. Please come satiate this yearning. Amen. Daddy, I need you. (laughs) Mommy, I need you. How many of you have a relationship with God where you can just be that honest? Lord, I need you. And that's enough. Moving on. All Peter could do in that moment was cry out to God in fear. And there we see a picture very similar to our psalm reading tonight. The psalmist was in a mortal situation. He cries out to God. And in the moments of fear, moments of distress, God saved him. We read this. Now I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 and then jump to verse 4. I love the Lord because He has heard my voice. Am my pleas for mercy because He has inclined His ear to me? I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Notice that both in the case of Peter and in the case of the psalmist, these cries from the darkness, as I mentioned, are, are quick, short cries for help. We have to recognize that God is not moved sometimes by our long prayers, but our short ones. Every so often when my wife and I ride around, we see houses that have been afflicted by fire. There seems to have been a house if you drive this way to uh, Altoona or Hollidaysburg or something like that Post uh, right before Geesey Town, if you're coming from where we are, there's a house that clearly set ablaze at some point and it's still there. It has the char still around it. Now, if these people were there in the midst of a fire, what do you think their comments would be? Help, get up, get out, call the fire department, quick, short burst of desperation. Notice that when the psalmist recounts how God saved him, he he is straight to the point, deliver me, deliver me, deliver me. And our God who is wonderful, who is gracious, who is righteous, we're told inclined his ear to the psalmist in verse 2. Sometimes we act as if God is off on a golf trip and he forgets to hear us. Sometimes we act as if God isn't actually all that interested in what we have to say. But that's not the image we find in the Scriptures tonight. We find a God who's intimately concerned with our lives, with our futures, with our suffering. Now, of course, God doesn't have ears. John 4 tells us that God is a spirit. But this is symbolic or figurative to tell us what God is like. Uh, The great pastor theologian John Calvin described uh, in this way, He says, as nurses commonly do with infants, God is wont in a measure to lisp in speaking to us. Thus, such forms of speaking don't so much express what God is like as as much to accommodate the knowledge of Him with our slight capacities. In other words, the Bible uses these pictures to help us understand who God is. When you explain a complicated issue to a child, well, that's what God does with us in the Scriptures. The book of Psalms is ripe with these sorts of images because they're meant to help us understand what God is like. The Psalms are meant to be a guide to teach us what God is like. God is carefully listening for the cries of His people. What are you crying out to Him for tonight? What is it that's drowning your soul? What is it that when you get up at three in the morning... It's the first thing you think about. Or four, six, or so on. It's comforting to know that God is not too busy for you. I recently found out that I am now uh, living as a neighbor to four small skunks. I called pest control. They were too busy for me. It's a very unfortunate thing. It's frustrating because I have a need, and they can fill that need, but they are too busy. Isn't it good to know that God is never too busy for us? God is never too busy for you when your children are sick or when you're exhausted or and you're not sure what's the next step. God is never too busy for you when you pray and say, God, help me understand your word. God is never too busy for you when you need his help and protection, his strength, his guidance, his clarity for your world. He isn't too busy for you. He doesn't abide by our work schedule. Please pray between the hours of nine and five, Monday through Friday afterwards. If you need assistance, wait till Monday. He doesn't do that. We're told in Psalm 121, one of my favorite psalms, Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And so I want to encourage you tonight that as you leave this place and go on through your week to be reminded of this regularly, that God has inclined his ear to you for the sake of Christ. Paul reminds us in Acts 17, he says, he's actually not far from each one of us. Do you feel far from God tonight? The Bible says he's actually not far from each one of us. Because of Christ, we can call to him at any moment, and he's not too busy for you. And what God does as we draw near to him is he sanctifies us. He sanctifies our pain. Do you know God sanctifies our pain? He uses it to draw us closer to him. Alexander McLaren notes, sorrow is meant to drive to God. When cries become prayers, they are not in vain. This is our lesson from the Psalms tonight. God is not indifferent about your pain. He's not. God is not unmoved by your suffering. God ignores none of His people. He says in Hebrews 7.25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. This is appropriate. Uh, our church is German Reformed, so we celebrate Ascension. Uh, we celebrate Pentecost and things like that. This Sunday, typically, many churches would consider the redemptive historical, once-for-all reality of Christ's Ascension. One of the great benefits for us as the people of God that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father is that He lives to pray for us as His people. It's a great comfort to us. Why does He do that? Why would anyone do that? No, by his actions we learn about his identity. He is the sort of God who hears the cries of his people. The sort of God who acts on their behalf in the moments of their need. But even more clearly, we find this in verse 5 of our text. Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. And so I want to ask you, when you view God this evening, are you viewing him as merciful? Or is he something different? Do you view him as the angry lawgiver? the one who's there to thump you because you had a bad thought when you were 12 and he hasn't forgotten. We don't want to make light of the righteousness of God. It is serious and his justice is true. But we also learn about the beauty of his mercy because of Christ, the mercy that he makes available for all who repent and believe. These attributes are are like facets of a diamond. They come together to highlight who this God is. Notice that the first word in verse 5 of our text tonight is gracious. What does that mean? He gives us what we do not deserve. If you are here tonight and think that God owes you something because you come to morning and evening worship, but you do X, Y, and Z, you have missed the entirety of the Christian faith. God owes us nothing. And what He gives, He gives by grace alone. We deserve His wrath. He gives us His mercy. We run from his presence and he, he pursues us as the hound of heaven. We are enslaved and kiss the chains that hold us to the ground. We are set free by our Savior who took our chains upon himself. He is righteous. We see the holiness of our God who cannot forsake his holy character. Again, as we see, God is not indifferent about sin. He confronts it, but he does this through His Son. Which leads us to the next phrase in verse 5. Our God is merciful. What is often lost in our English translations is this enduring and ongoing character surrounding the word merciful. God is not merciful once. You get one get-out-of-hell-free card, and after that, you're done. He doesn't do that. He is persistently merciful. He is persistently compassionate. He is persistently... One who is gracious. This is what we saw tonight in Lamentations 3. Now, if you don't know this, Lamentations is the saddest book in the Bible. And yet, in the saddest book of the Bible, written by the saddest prophet in the Bible, likely Jeremiah, in the very heart of the book, which is not accidental, and I mean that literally, in the middle of the book, you find this, Lamentations 3.32. Though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. It's this merciful, compassionate disposition which is displayed before us. Again, in verse 6 of our text tonight, the Lord preserves the simple. How many of you are thankful for that? I am. Again, the language of preservation or guarding. It's not a single time. He doesn't just protect you once. It's a perpetual task. He's perpetually gracious to you. He's perpetually preserving you. But He doesn't more than guard the simple. He trains them up. And His chief means of doing that, of taking us from simplicity to wisdom, to to go from paragons of foolishness to paragons of wisdom, is by means of His Word. We read that in Psalm 19.7. It says there, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple so what do we learn about God so far? If we had a little list, if you have notes, what do we see? God is worthy of our love. He hears the cries of His people. He's always more ready to listen than we are to pray. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, said that Christ meant more willingly to the cross than we go to the Lord to pray. We see as well, God has the power to intervene on our behalf, especially when we're confronted with horrifying situations. God is gracious to sinners like us. He's not just gracious to people who are just decent level sinners, but once you get to the real nitty gritty stuff, He's out. He's gracious to sinners who cry out to Him. And He's righteous, and He never abandons His law. He never casts away problem people, but patiently guides them to grow in wisdom by His Word. And we learn one more thing from this psalm. We're looking at verses 8 and 9, if you have your text open about our great God's act of deliverance, we read there, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. What is the psalmist trying to bring to our view? God is not distant, but with us when the world seems to be falling apart. God's past faithfulness empowers us as His people to face every obstacle. With hope. Because even if we find ourselves with a hurdle which seems too great, we are reminded that nothing is too great for our God. Just as God has saved his people in the past, so shall he save them today. And tomorrow. And the next day. And the next month. And the next year. And the next generation. This is what the psalmist realizes. He rejects the comfort and strength of men and women. Verses 11 and 12 in our text is not so much a rejection, as we read it, of decent people or something like that, as much as a declaration that God alone must be our strength. And so when the acts and character of God are considered, there's only one appropriate response, and it's worship. Which brings us to our second point then, that God's acts transform His people. The psalmist asks this pertinent question in verse twelve. Look at it with me. What shall I render to the Lord for all of His benefits to me? God saves your soul. What do you owe Him? Somebody helps you out with a task. You have to move some furniture. How do you thank them? If you're cheap like me, you buy them pizza, and that's that's enough. But what do you do with somebody who saves your soul? What is the re- Appropriate response. What do you have? Well, how, how much money do you think that would be? How many favors or gestures do you think that would be? What would be enough? Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, wrote this. He said, "We can return nothing to God except the vows of praise and confession. For we have all things from Him, and He needs nothing of our goods." We might think of, of Saint Augustine, uh, that early pastor. He says this, who's called upon him, save he whom he first called. And so we return to this abiding dynamic that our God is not just initially merciful, but persistently merciful, kind, and gracious. I want to note with you that the psalmist, as he's responding to this goodness of God, he makes promises to God. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me this is the i wills what will he do i will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the lord i will pay my vows to the lord in the presence of all his people well what do we do with this cup image well we might first think of a literal cup there's a cup such as a drink offering we can read about that in numbers chapter 15 verse 10. is there something else going on there's a symbolic cup that we see in psalms 23 remember we're dealing with poetry here people We're drawn to language there where it says in, in Psalms 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And so as we follow the psalmist's thought through this, we see this faithfulness and this mercy of God. We're looking at His compassion. And then we look at verse 15 which says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Now this seems weird for us. We live in a culture that doesn't deal with death. We don't know how to mourn, we don't know how to grieve, we don't know how to process. We run from these things, we don't talk about them. But the psalmist is praising God for the ways that he has delivered him from the cords of death, and he shifts to God's care for the death of his people. We are again reminded that the psalms are not all neat and tidy. Here, in the psalmist's response of the character of God, there's further revelation of who He is. Who is this God? Who is this God that we are called to worship? We learn that God is not unmoved by the death of His people. Just yesterday, I was talking with a member of our church who's preparing for his father to enter into glory. May it already happened. got to pray with him and encourage him. Is God indifferent about the death of His saints? No. The text right here tells us that He cares for His people even in their last moments. He cares for them. And how could He not? They are His own. We're reminded of the Lord Jesus who knew full well that Lazarus would be raised from the dead by His own hand and yet we're reminded in John's Gospel most vividly that Jesus was moved. He wept. Shortest verse ever as a kid. If you wanted to win for Bible memorization, that's the one you jump on. That's two words. Why does Jesus weep? You learn something about his heart. He wept as he approached the tomb. God is not indifferent about our pain. And it has to cause us to sing and to worship, to rejoice, to have hope, to have comfort, to do something other than try and dull our senses with the somas of this world. At the reminder of the character of God, the psalmist renewed himself again as one who belongs entirely to God. Read this in verse 16 with me. O Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. What would your I am sentence be today if you were honest with God? I am your what? Are you God's servant today? Could you say that in good conscience? That you're seeking to be God's servant? Is God a means towards your kingdom building? Or are you seeking to serve and aiding his? The rest of the psalm reads much the same. And so we come then to our final point. God God's acts shape his worship. We find promises of worship and thanksgiving. And they're always guided under the auspices of public worship. Notice that the psalmist says here that he will honor God with sacrifices, with prayers, with vows. And all of it is going to be accomplished in a very public way. Notice that the Bible does not celebrate this kind of privatization of religion. Religion is for what you do in your private. You don't talk to people about it. Don't let it bleed out anywhere. That's you. Keep it there. That's not in the Bible. The sort of response we find here is public, it's visible, it's evident. If you've got a bad haircut, everyone knows you've got a bad haircut. You can't wear that hat for everyone. Something happens to you, it's public. God has come and invaded your world and transformed you from the inside out. It's going to become very public in the relationships of your life, in your profession, depending on what you do. God's work within you always manifests itself visibly. And so the psalmist says that. He says, In the presence of all His people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. I want to encourage you. We live in a time and in a context where you are meant to feel ashamed for being a Christian, whether it be in your family, or your job, or your school, or your community. Being a Christian is not a private affair. It's meant to be public. This psalm is a testimony against Christianity being limited only to your private corners. The acts of God are not private. Though this psalm could be limited merely as a song of praise for the deliverance of an individual from death, God, in His providence, as He guides human history towards its goal, has used this psalm as a testimony of how He saved His people from the horrors of death in the land of Egypt. Moses described Israel's redemption from Egypt in this way. This is Deuteronomy 4.20. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance. This psalm was chiefly on the lips of God's people during the final celebrations of Passover. If you remember, this would be something common. This would even be sung by the Son of God on the night before he was crucified. That very event itself is a testimony that God delivers His people from the very snares of death. And uniquely enough, it was by means of death, the death of the firstborn, that God delivered His people initially. It's not accidental, because one day this God would redeem His people by means of the death of another firstborn. It would not be the death of a Pharaoh, or the death of a son of Caesar, It would not even be the death of the sons of His enemies. The people of God would forever be redeemed by the death of God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by means of His death, we escape death. By means of His life, we enter into eternal life. As the people of God recited and sung this psalm looking back to God's faithfulness in Egypt, we too as Christians can join our voices together and our hearts to recite and sing this psalm Not only looking backwards at the cross, the great display of God's faithfulness, but also looking forward to the day when the King of Kings, the Lord of Glory, will return and conquer every foe. One day, Jesus will return and consummate the glorious coming of His kingdom, where death will forever be crucified this glorious gift which has begun in our hearts from the very day we were born again by the Spirit. And so the Jewish people remembered God's hand of redemption when they would recite these words on Passover. Now I'll read to you, as we conclude this evening, these are words, um, words from the Mishnah. These are actually the Jewish people's words. They would recite this on Passover. It is our duty to thank, praise, laud, glorify, raise up, beautify, bless, extol, and adore him who made all these miracles for our fathers and ourselves. He brought us from slavery into freedom, from sorrow into joy, from mourning into festivity, from darkness into great light, from servitude to redemption. Let us say before him, Hallelujah. With that before us then, let us take a moment to pray. Father, we thank You again for the gift of Your Holy Word which guides us and leads us into the truth. We thank You for the gift of Your Holy Son who has come to redeem us from the pangs of death, who willingly submitted Himself to it. We praise You, God, and thank You that You have called us by name and that the very air we breathe now is resurrection air because we have been raised with Christ. As Your Word teaches us, we've been crucified with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ, That you are with us. And that you care for us. We thank you, God, for these promises of your mercy and grace. And we pray that you would help us to walk in these ways that honor you. Grant us these things we ask for the sake of our King. Amen.